what a privilege, though, to be here with you. And I, I don't want to neglect uh, to pay honor to whom it is due. I thank God for the ministry of Urshan, Urshan College, Urshan Graduate School, and, and what is going on here and the people who sacrifice to make this what it is. And you've heard several of them already in this meeting. I pay honor to Dr. Coltharp. He is a friend and a man that I honor. I revere, I revere him very, very much. And Dr. Wilson, even though we're on either side of Houston, and um, it's like there is a great gulf in Houston called downtown. Nobody crosses it. And, uh, and, and I've so enjoyed, I've enjoyed his books, and uh, I just bought the latest one you co-wrote with Brother Mullins, I believe. That's a, that's a great book. It's a great book. I've already plagiarized much of it. And, um, and uh, I'm, I'm like what Brother Cotharp said, we'll steal it, you know, I mean, I'm telling you. And, but I so enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed his writings, and I've enjoyed uh, these sessions and his transparency uh, very, very much. And uh, what Brother Dennis just shared with us was amazing and was revelatory and very insightful. And, and, and I want to tell you, that was amazing, how you did that and the length of time that you did. And you heard it, all of these lousy D and I, and okay, and... Uh, <laughs> kept these D's in line the whole time. I, I just don't know how you do it, but um, I am thankful to be here. I, uh, I, I want to I wanna, uh, be true to what Dr. Cotharp asked me to do. I want to share with you a little bit about what I'm doing now and how I see that it relates to organizational leadership um, uh, in general. And so um, but to do that, I need to talk about I need to talk about how I came into leadership, and it differs. I didn't come into leadership through the ministry, unless you. I did drive buses, Brother Kilgore did not really believe in laws very much, and is this going live? And so I, I started driving a, a bus route for the church when I was 15. I didn't have my license yet, and uh, but. I could drive, and so I did, and, uh, and, and we did kids' church, and we, uh, you know, I was involved in church, per se, as volunteer ministry, loved every bit of it, and, uh, but my leadership started in the secular world, and even though I don't believe the great divide between the secular and the spiritual, I, I just don't believe it, I believe that we carry the light, and you heard the story of Joseph already, and it's like, wow, he carried his faith, his trust in God into a very, what we would call secular realm. And I believe wherever we go, we're to be a light. And we can do, I, I don't want to say as much for the kingdom, and yet I will tell you this, if that's where God's called you, grow grow. And uh, I pastor a lot of entrepreneurs. I pastor a lot. There is no really, and I'm just, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I just want to dispel some notions and myths. I don't believe in the great divide between the secular and spiritual. Uh, in our church, no one is paid full time. Everyone has a second job, me included. I have a second and third job because I want relevant people working for us. I want them to remember what it's like to get up and go to work early in the morning. I want them to remember what it was like to make ends meet. I don't want them sleeping all day and then showing up and fussing at saints for not worshiping at night. Because that's how I was raised and that's how our church was founded. My father-in-law did the same thing. And so none of us make full-time wages. In fact, it's just a privilege to be a part of the team. Now that's the way we feel. We're just happy to be there and to be a part of it. But I came at it from a different angle, and I want to share a little bit of that with you, and, and it shapes how I think. Um, the questions I've, I've asked, and I've asked these for years, why do things fail, and why do things succeed? And what can be done to heighten the chance of success so it doesn't fail? 
if as IBM founder Thomas Watson said that asking the right question is more than half the battle of finding the right answer, then I think those are good questions to start with. And their questions have been with me for a very, very long time. I sold real estate when I was uh, 18. I got my license when I turned 18. And I started selling real estate. And I did that for a couple of years, working through college and working through at grocery stores and sweeping parking lots and doing everything you normally do to get through college. And, um, but I was in a five-year accounting program. And uh, at, the, at the start, at the end of the third year, they said, you've got to go find a job in this field. You've got to get the practicum. You've got to get that. And, it's, and so I, I went to the company where my father-in-law was a general manager at one time. And uh, he knew a person. And don't you dare doubt it that life moves at the speed of relationships. It's not how much you know. It's not what you know. It's who you know. And it really is. It's who you know. And do you cultivate those relationships? And, and so through an old employee friend of my father-in-law, he got me a job at a Fortune 500 company. And uh, I had a head start. I was an expediter. I worked in the warehouse, loved driving forklifts. I think I could have spent the rest of my life. I was fulfilled in that role. And uh, racing forklifts at, by night when the boss was, oh, anyway. And it was just, you know, it was, it was where it was at. And, um, but they found out that, and then I was an expediter moving product all the way from the raw yard uh, through the warehousings through, or through the manufacturing process, the outsourcing and getting it to the finished product, testing it and getting it out to the field and actually being a part of watching, the, watching it tested and serviced out there. I, I had a year of that and uh, that was about my third year of college and then and then I, I, met the, I met the VP of manufacturing, and he was a CPA. And I told him I was in an accounting program. He said, you need to go to work up on the fourth floor. And that was it. Life moves at the speed of relationships. And he got me up to the fourth floor where I became a junior accountant, beginning my fourth year of the accounting program. Um, I knew nothing about debits and credits in the real world and how things were done. And started doing my thing, reconciling bank statements and just doing my thing and whatever. But I had an advantage. I knew what we did in that company. None of them did. I knew what we actually did. I knew what we made money on and what was the most profitable and what was the least profitable. And every Ivy League boss over me, they were competent. It was a high growth industry. We were growing at 35% compounded each year. And the numbers were just over the top. When you're growing that fast, there are a lot of backfilling of systems and processes that are not being done. And you're just growing too fast to keep up uh, with the infrastructure and the supply lines. And blind spots developed. It's those not so tiny foxes that begin to spoil the vines. So in my position uh, reporting, uh, when I graduated from college, that day, they promoted me to senior accountant. And, um, and I reported to the controller, but the VP of operations liked me because he, was, he knew he could talk to me that I knew what they were doing out there. And nobody on the fourth floor knew what they were doing. And, and so I reported to both of them. And I, I, I realized there was a missing element in our company. Fortune 500 company grew to a Fortune 100 company uh, before, before disaster hit. And, uh, but I was not there when disaster hit, thank God. And, uh, but it, it was growing. But I knew something that was missing. And again, why do businesses fail? Why do they succeed? One reason is they don't have a good dashboard. They just don't know where they are at. They, they can intuit, they can guess, they can feel, but it's not plotted, it's not charted. So I created what I called a daily flash report. And back then it was difficult. Data processing was a behemoth uh, that sat behind locked gates in a separate building, in a 100,000 square foot building. Uh, 
I had to get there at four in the morning and arrive at the front gate, get clearance access, and then I threaded my way through numerous reams of paper to get the data I needed for my little one-page flash report. Um, my little one-page dashboard then, it had the date and the time on it. Uh, it had the cash balances of all the profit centers, lock boxes, monies in transit. It had the inventory levels worldwide of all of our plants. It had the daily sales and shipping broken down for every profit center, every manufacturing facility. It had the daily gross profit by profit center. It had our backlogs. It had our times, our accounts receivable age, our payables age. Now, if I had a different job, my dashboard would have looked totally different. But for the job that I was doing, it's what they needed. By 6.30 in the morning, I laid my report on my boss's and my peers' desks. As others started getting there, the first thing they would see was that report. My morning walk, the word began to spread, and so my morning walk became a little more involved, and eventually it routed me through the C-suite, and it was the first piece of paper looked at by every executive in that company each morning. Because I realized then, as a low man on the totem pole, that they can't make good decisions unless they have a dashboard. The two great mistake with numbers is they matter too much or they matter too little. And uh, you need a dashboard that reflects where you are. Dr. Wilson quoted Peter Drucker, that management guru. He used to have a st statement. Whenever he consulted with the business, he asked them two questions. What business are you in? And two, how's business? How's your business? Do you really know what business you are in? For church leadership, that, that's a complicated question. Because years ago, uh, we built church campuses that looked like public schools. Back then, we were in the educational business. You had a class for every age. You had this. And then we got into, I think, the big box warehousing business for a while. It was just build a big box and see how many people you can cram into the building. And uh, then we got into the entertainment business. And then we've just moved from business to business. What business are we in? Our church has a single word mission. It's others. That's what we're, we're about. We're not about ourselves. We're about others. People come to our church. We have 250 UPC churches in Houston Metro, that many more apostolic churches. They come to our church from other churches. That's the largest church in Houston. It's floating. And they come to our church from other churches in Houston. Here's what we say. We're so happy that you're here. But you know what? You pass 15 churches to get to our church. If you'll hold on a moment, we'll give you the addresses of those churches. We want you to be involved in a church. We want you to attend somewhere. So why don't you go try out those 15 churches? If they show back up again, which they rarely do, if they show back up again, we're going to say, look, listen, let me just tell you what this church is about. We're not into singing hymns. We're not into, we're not into uh, old term language from five generations back. The average age of our church is 26 years of age. Uh, you need to know. You need to know who we are. If you're not about reaching and discipling souls, you're going to hate it here. Because we're not going to cater to you. We're not going to pat you on the back. We're not going to burp you. We're not going to carry you along. You have had enough knowledge to be one of the greatest disciplers. Now, if you're into discipleship and you want to be challenged, we're going to challenge the fire out of you. Otherwise, there are many other churches in Houston where you, you say, Brother Curly, y'all do that? We do that. Because our culture matters more to us than bringing people in that want to try to transpose the culture of our church. We are the most multicultural city in Houston. Um, that just came out yesterday. We are the most multicultural city under 150,000 in the entire United States. I have a new cricket match, a cricket field being built one mile from my church. I have two Hindu temples, two Buddhist temples, Taoist temples. We are a very multicultural area. We are about others. We're about others. And, that, and so our dashboard reflects that. It's about others. And that's what we do in the local church. But that was my first formal experience with the dashboard. 
It was rudimentary, and over the years, it's become more complex, and my ministry and leadership has become more complex than what it was, but still comes back to those two questions. Why do things fail, and why do things succeed? I, I believe the church's business, and uh, I do a lot of church consultations, just like Dr. Wilson does, and when I do it, oh boy, oh boy, I'm about to get in trouble. I ask everybody in the room, what do we do? What do we do? And some will say, we are here, we are here to hold up the doctrines, the apostolic doctrines. I said, that's good. That's really good. Yes, we are. Uh, we are here to be the light in the darkness. Yes, that's very, very good. We are here to train the next generation. I said, absolutely. Yes, we are. That's great. The problem is not the quality of the answers. The problem is, is in the quantity of the answers. Because what you've just revealed is that everybody is pulling a different direction. And if you don't have a, a rallying point, then everybody's going to be saying, this is what we should be doing, and this is what we should be doing. Like the church in Corinth, you had, oh, let's see, what, four groups pulling different ways in the church of Corinth. You had one group saying, you know, we're going to pray the prayer of faith. You had the prayers. Uh, you had another group that said, we're going to understand all mysteries and knowledge. You had the theologians in that group. You had the other, the other group that says, we're going to speak in tongues of men and of angels. They're the worshipers. And then you had uh, those who give their bodies to be burnt. That's obviously the peanut brittle makers. I mean, obviously, there is no other way to interpret that. And if you hear anything else here at Urshan, they are wrong. And I'm right. And... Uh, <laughs> But here was the problem is each of the four groups were vying for dominance that you need to be just like me. If you're, if this church is going to succeed, you've got to be, if, if we're going to be who we, you've got to be just, no, 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 you don't have to be like me. You have to find that more excellent way and you've got to rally around something for us. It's others. We believe it is biblical. God so loved the world. That's the business we're in is reaching and discipling the laws. And so I, 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 this was, uh, I'm curious. I've always been curious about why things succeed. And so when I got into more and more ministry in the churches and organizational work uh, within the United Pentecostal Church, I just, I kept that curiosity. Why do we fail? Why don't we succeed? And that curiosity eventually led to healthy churches. Let me give you a 10 minute overview of healthy churches. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. I believe that with all of my heart. But I believe its health determines its longevity and its influence. The risen Lord inspected the seven churches of Asia. The first church, Ephesus, you remember, uh, they were, man, I mean, they did a lot. They hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They hated the work, false works. They were good haters, I mean. And uh, they, but they had left their first love. They were seduced by the secondary. And here's what the Lord said to that church that we would give an A, maybe an A minus, but we, we would rank it as one of the greatest churches in our movement. Because you see Ephesus and how they dominated and how they, how they were part of the great revival there in Ephesus. But Jesus said, if you don't remember from where thou art fallen, if you don't repent, and if you don't return, I'm going to shake your lampstand. I would rather have this city in darkness than to have an unhealthy church here. Now, that's, that is powerful. That's the one with the eyes of flame of fire that looks at church a little differently than what we do. Uh, I, I, as Simon Sinek wrote in that groundbreaking book, we need to start with a why. So why healthy churches? The simple answer is the need is great. I'm going to quote some stats here real quick. Um, what, the application to the apostolic realm, I just leave for others to discover we're not yet to the place where we have uh, all of the diagnostic tools and the research capable of answering some of these questions. So anecdotally, just look at it and see if it applies to you. 
if it confirms, resonates in your spirit. Mainline churches started declining many years back. Evangelical churches started falling more recently. Southern Baptist is closing, they're closing 1,300 churches a year. Now, it's that bad. It has reached a critical mass. Um, those who study the church can tell you there are many reasons for the decline in mainline religion and nominal Christianity. There's family dissolution. I mean, John the Baptist came preaching repent. Jesus preached repent. Simon Peter preached repent. Today we preach reparent. You pray, basically the family is dissolved. And all the good sinners are in the Baptist churches. And uh, we're left with the most dysfunctional people you've ever seen who have no basis for understanding what a normal life, a normal home life should be. That's who we deal with. You should see the Bible study my wife and I teach right now. There's about 12 of them in there. They have dreadnoughts. They have more ink than a printer's shop. And uh, they, they are pretty wild. They can bench press 400 pounds, even the guys. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a bunch. I'm telling you, it's a bunch. But they're my people. They're my people. They're my babies. And you better not talk about them. I mean, they're my babies. First, they'll take you out. And uh, they're not <laughs> discipled quite yet. But they're our babies. They're, they're who we, we matter. And they don't know a thing about how to treat people. And family dissolution, that's part of the problem. Metro migration, the Zetgeist, the spirit of our age, this non-kinetic World War III that we're going through of cultural decline and apostasy. But the more common causes are simple. Movements become monuments. Members are more interested in roots than fruits. There's an inward focus, oh my, a fortress mentality. Complacency, lethargy, fatigue, division, carnality. You get the picture. We've all lived it. We've all seen it. How great is the need? I believe it's level four trauma. I really believe it's that. I believe there needs to be an intervention from above, from within, from around. And uh, I, I'm not going to share with you all the stats, but let me just give you a, a few. It was in 1988, my first year of being senior pastor. Wynn Arn made a statement in a church not far from me. By the way, that church was the largest church in Houston at the time, at least in southeast Houston where I'm at. Um, it closed five years ago. They had 15 people left. And uh, the last time I was in the building, all 15 people sat. They wouldn't sit on the front row. They sat on the second and third row in an auditorium that sat thousands of people because they failed to recognize they failed to recognize that the harvest field was around them, not somewhere out there, out there in the. But he, he made this statement. He said of the approximately 350,000 churches in America, four out of five are either plateaued or declining. Now, that statement just, it just made people mad. It just made them mad. People said, well, I'm going to show you. You know, that was sort of the attitude. But since then, uh, Rainer, uh, who was with Lifeway Resources at the time, they studied 1,159 U.S. churches in 2002 from all evangelical persuasions, and they said only 6% were growing, 94% were declining or plateaued. Gary McIntosh, who some of our pastors have worked with, uh, he said recently that there is one evangelical district here in the Midwest that 97% of their churches are declining. Not plateaued, declining. How great is the need? A new study by Lifeway in 2019, approximately 3,000 Protestant churches were started in the U.S., 4,500 churches closed. That, that's staggering because 10 years ago it wasn't that way. There were more churches started than closed. Now, the UPCI, many of the other apostolic organizations, thank God we're not in this fix right now. But we need to recognize this is the culture, this is in the environment that we're working in. How, how does this apply to the apostolic movement? I, I, I can't say with a great degree of confidence. I'm not going to overstate it. More research is needed. But to some extent, we see parallel trends threatening us. And we didn't know where we're at. 
if the objective is more churches, then we need an encompassing model that says more churches equals new churches plus renewed churches. If every new church goes through the launch process at NAM, then probably every existing church needs to go through a relaunch process, a time to wipe the slate clean and say, let's get the vision right, let's get the culture right, and make sure that we know what we are doing. Healthy churches grow. The, the process of getting a church healthy is called revitalization. Um, here's a quote from executive director of Lifeway Research. It's more than a fad. I, I fully anticipate that there will be a day here at Urshan that there will be a church revitalization major. I just believe that. Uh, it probably under org leadership or something, but I, I, I believe it's that needed. And based on my conversations and based on who has talked to me and what we're doing, I, I, I think the need is acute. I think it's, it's, it, it, it's urgent. What if we treated every existing church the way we do a, a, a new church plan and uh, help pastors and teams get refocused on the harvest? What if each local church could gain the same sense of desperation and urgency that exists in a church plan? What if we could come alongside a pastor and his team and help them chart a path to relaunch, renew, revitalize, that church. What if every pastor knew you're not alone in this, that there's cohorts, there's cohorts and groups of pastors that are going through this to encourage one another. We, what if we taught the pastor the principles of rapid change? That is, that is the buzz phrase of where we are at right now, rapid change. Uh, we have been through cataclysmic changes on every front. I mean, who would have thought this past week that the United States Senate, by an overwhelming majority, would pass legislation or at least open the door to pass the legislation for uh, same-sex unions? Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that? We are in an era of rapid change, and it's happening all around us, and we have to respond. We don't have to respond. We have to anticipate the change and get out in front. Was it Wayne Gretzky said, I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where the puck is going to be or something like that. I know nothing about hockey, except I just like watching people just beat each other up, you know. It just, it, just, it, it soothes my spirit. <laughs> I work out angst that way. Here's the progress thus far of Healthy Churches. And by the way, the website's healthychurches.org. Uh, we have a team of volunteers helping us. We're training our second group of coaches. Every coach that we have trained now has a full slate of churches uh, that are working with them. If the local church is the hope of the world, we believe there is no local church that cannot be saved. We believe there's no local church that cannot be turned around. And uh, that's what they were called in the past, turnaround churches, comeback churches. We believe that every church can be revitalized and every church can turn around. Uh, it's grown steady, the church revitalization movement. Here's the methodology. Let me give it to you real quick. A trained coach who is also a pastor will lead a pastor through the kickstart analysis. And let me, let me hit the three reports that we do. A kickstart analysis report, benchmarks. We are establishing benchmarks, learning about the church, getting the benchmarks, um, how, how, how many parking spaces do you have? How many seats do you have? How many, uh, how long have you been in existence? What's your attendance? What's your, uh, age groups? We go through that whole thing. The second thing is the know your community report. This is a lot of eye candy. Let's see if, uh, uh, okay, go to the next slide. Let's see if we can figure this one out. This is a difficult slide. Down at the bottom, see if there's a video that you can slide down. There you go. This is what it looks like. It's a 37-page report. Uh, we can do this report if you say, I want to see 10-mile radius around the church. I want to see the county. I want to see the city limits. Uh, rural churches, we, re we recommend they do at least 50 miles around the church. The fastest, some of the fastest-growing churches in our movement are rural churches that are realizing, I am not just in Smithville but I, I'm the church of the county. 
I'm not just the church of this county. I'm the church of the next county. Some of the fastest growing churches we see in our movement right now are five and seven countywide churches. It's staggering. And uh, what a privilege to work with them. They just got rid of that small town mindset. And they are the church for the region. And it's, it's staggering, and it's staggering what's happened. This will provide the basic demographics, um, but it also, and, and by the way, this is one thing that I always encourage, always encourage. Uh, Dr. Wilson said a moment ago that, you know, the, the church that valued families. I think it would shock you. One of the things that I always encourage pastors to look at with this is how many single moms raising children are within 10 miles of their church. You want to talk about where we're at as a society. Um, families look different than what they did when I was growing up. And reaching people where they're at, not in an emergent church mentality, not in a we're going to design a church just for you, but knowing, knowing what the harvest field looks like around you. It, it, it's it's eye-opening. It's eye-opening. Always ask, pastors, do you know how many people live within a three-mile driving distance of your church? It's a staggering number. This is why, this is why we have a saying in Houston about so many churches um, that every light draws its own bugs. And, uh, you know, there's so many people that, you know, now if you're, if you're fishing in aquariums, then that's a problem for you. But if you're fishing for men and women that are lost, you have an unlimited, you're the old Red Sea, Blue Sea strategy. If you want to get into the Blue Ocean strategy, start reaching for the loss. You have no competition there. I mean, it's just, you just get out there and, and you're the one doing that. Uh, this not only includes demographics, it includes psychographics. These are felt needs. So, for example, I pastor two churches, one in Pearland. Uh, Pearland, the average homeowner is 29 years of age. The average age in our church is 26 years of age, okay? Very techy, very white collar. That's Pearland. And our nemesis in football is Katie. I'm glad we have nobody here from Katie here right now. And, uh, but, um, so our, our philosophy in Pearland is we're going to reach our community. Isn't that shocking? We're not going to reach who we think we want in our church. We're going to reach our community. Is that, is that, well, that's just revelatory, isn't it? And uh, it scares me when I see sometimes that churches have nobody that live with anywhere, anywhere near the church. And uh, they have people driving those 45 minutes in an hour to church because that spells long-term trouble for that church. You're not reaching your community. You're not being a light in the community. That's why Pearland, we, we have a totally different strategy. We, we sold our gym and we built an event center so that the mayor every year gives his state of the city address at our church. And uh, the highest administrative officer in, in Texas in the county is called a county judge. He gives the state of the county address in our church every year. The football have their banquets at our church every year. Pearland Chamber of Commerce has their luncheons at our church four and five times a year. Um, oh, I could go on and on because we are, you, you know, in Revelation 2 and 3, it says the church in and the church of. You have to decide, are you going to be the church in the city or the church of the city? We made a decision. We're going to be the church of the city. This is our city. This is our field. And we've got to win them. And one way to win them is to get them on the church property. Okay, all right. Psychographics felt needs. In Pearland, the felt need, the number one felt need in Pearland, we are concerned about our children's future. Now, this is an emergent church talk. This is real. And so what do we do? We emphasize our children's ministries. We emphasize our youth ministries. We emphasize our young marrieds. That's what we do. Baytown, I pastor uh, the oldest apostolic church in Houston. It's where my grandparents went to church over 100 years ago. I was born in Baytown. My siblings were born in Baytown. I pastor that church. Blue-collar town, totally, totally different harvest field. And what we do there is different than what we do in Pearland. There is no magic 
uh, wand. There is no silver bullet. One size fits all. And, uh, but what we do there is to reach a blue-collar worker and blue-collar families. And that church, I'm thankful, uh, when we stepped into a year and a half, they were in the teens. We have baptized, I think, well, they baptized four last Sunday. We have baptized 90. I'm going to get my numbers wrong. In the mid-90s, somewhere in the mid-90s in that church, and we are winning people and growing that church through conversions. Isn't that great? You want to talk about fun? That makes for a fun church because you got all kind of, okay. Anyway, uh, that's the demographics. The third one is important. It's the Know Your Church Report. This emerges through a 157-question survey. Uh, the coach sends the pastor a link, ask him to pray for an hour or so before he fills it out, does just what Brother Dennis did a moment ago, saying just answer it. Don't even think about it. Just answer these questions. And uh, don't contemplate. Just answer. When he finishes the survey, talks to the coach, and processes it, sort of a little metadata thing where you just talk, talk it through. How did it feel? What did you think about it? Do you feel comfortable sharing that with 10 other people in your church? When they do that, you feel comfortable sharing the link with another 10 people. We want to get as many people in the church taking it. And I always like in our church, we've done this for years, I like the cranks answering the questions because it gives us room for improvement. They're going to rate us zero on everything, you know. I, 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 want, the, I, I want room for improvement. I don't want these high nines and tens. I want zeros. And uh, so we have room for improvement. But gradually, when we have at least 15%, if it's a large church, 40 or 50%, if it's a smaller church, then we close the link survey and, and uh, the algorithms go to work and you end up with this Know Your Church report. And uh, this is a 32-page report. And again, there's a video. I don't know if you've gone through it. I hadn't looked back. This is a 32-page report. We are not gauging the doctrines of the church. We are not the doctrine police. We leave that for people like Brother Cotharp, district superintendent. He's responsible for that. And uh, we, 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 we are looking at some healthy characteristics that should be found in every church. Here are the six areas of health that we're looking at, gift-based ministries. Do you have square pegs and round holes? Why is it that every introvert in the church wants to be a greeter? I don't know why it is. I'm going to overcome being shy. I'm going to get out there and greet. If it's the last thing I do in, in our church, it will be the last thing you do because we want those crazy, over-the-top people that just... They sparkle their 100,000-watt radiance. By the, one, by the way, one of the um, greatest gurus of Pentecostal church growth, he's a German, uh, Dr. Wes Owens. You can't hardly understand anything the man says, but he's got some great documentation out there. He studied 1,000 growing Pentecostal churches. You know what one of the qualities of every growing Pentecostal church is? Every growing Pentecostal church has teens opening the front door of the church. Now, isn't that inc incredible? He said, I can't explain it. It speaks volumes to guests walking in the building to have young people opening the doors of the church. Not the, oh, oh, not the sour ones. And uh, Gift-based ministries uh, to, to be operating in the area of passion and gifting. Passionate spirituality. That is a second thing. What, what's the temperature? We're taught to be fervent in prayer, to be white hot in prayer. What is the temperature of that church in spirituality? Meaningful discipleship. Well, Brother Gertrude, we just, we just tell them if they just come to church, they're going to get everything they need in church. No, no, they're not going to get that all just in church. There needs to be... Every Paul needs a Barnabas. You, you, you got to have, this is Book of Acts stuff, folks. This is Book of Acts stuff. You, you need that. Uh, meaningful discipleship, need-oriented evangelism. That, that we are not designing evangelistic events just to try to get the people that we want there. You're going out and you're meeting needs and reaching for needs. True fellowship. And uh, we accomplish true fellowship for us. It's small groups. We are a small groups-based church. 
So during the pandemic, we had 114 small groups still meeting all through the pandemic. We do small groups. One of our greatest small groups was a cul-de-sac group. We didn't even know we had a cul-de-sac group. It was a guy that got mad. This is a great basis for ministry, and he just got mad. He, he was a people person. He, he wanted to be around people, and he couldn't. And so he just decided you could do it outdoors. So he took some sawhorses, put them across the cul-de-sac in front of his house, and blocked the traffic. Looked at it a little while and said, what am I going to do next? He went and got his fire pit and put it right in the dead center of the cul-de-sac and lit a fire and put a few lawn chairs out there and thought, well, if anybody shows up, they may want food. So he brought his grill out there and started grilling hot dogs. Then he brought his guitar out there and started playing and singing. All by himself, within 45 minutes, 140 people had brought their lawn chairs and were gathered in that cul-de-sac. And you say, Brother Gurley, how, how do you count that? We, we can't count that. We don't even try to count that. But what we know is that if somebody can get lost in the vision of others, they will make a way. They will figure out a way to touch other people's lives. True fellowship. True fellowship. That's what we do, inspiring worship. Those three ports in hand, the coach works with the pastor. It's an 18-month process. So here's the Healthy Church Initiative. Let me just give it to you real quick and get off this prayer focus. It's pastor-led. Church never sees the coaches. This is all pastor-led. What we're teaching the pastor is how to build a team, and we're teaching the pastor the principles of rapid change and how to address the areas that mean the most. And this is a UPCI SGI endeavor. Uh, this is all UPCI coaches. It's individual based. Every church is unique. It's cohort equipped. Every coach will bring together everyone he's coaching once a month into a coaching call and they just share what's happening. And uh, it's iron sharpening iron. And, uh, and it's exciting, train coaches, uh, we're keeping them trained. Uh, they've been certified. I just finished another certification so we can take them to a new level uh, after the first of the year. Uh, it's sustained. It's comprehensive. It's team-based, and it works. Um, the limited exposure we've had to this in the formal, we've been doing this for years, but in the informally, I can say that if a church will get others focused and will start, magnifying the strengths and addressing the weaknesses, uh, I, I can say it's not unusual for a church to double in those 18 months. It's just not unusual. In fact, I talked to one of the students about where his pastor is, or his, his parents are pastoring right now at a church in Houston. They just went there. They have gone from eight to 54 people just by getting others focused. Now, smaller the churches, greater percentages you're gonna see, but every church, can benefit from this and if nothing more you hit the reset button and you relaunch and maybe you can shake off a little pandemic blues and just push forward is that all right okay that's it now let me just wrap this uh let me just try to leap into industry uh, again i'm a cpa i've helped a lot of businesses uh, i don't do that much anymore i'm still licensed and I still pay my dues, and just because, namely, I don't want to take that exam ever again for the rest of my life. And uh, but, but it, it, I still work, and I work with a lot of groups. But uh, and I do have a lot of entrepreneurs in our church, and a lot of business owners, and a lot of C-suite executives in our church uh, for major companies. That if I mentioned their names, you would know them. Um, when when I. When I left industry, my CFO, I reported the CFO at that time, they were trying to undo a culture of leadership in the organization. And it's a, it's a dastardly, I like the word dastardly, just sounds really terrible. It's a dastardly form of leadership. And uh, it's called the benevolent autocrat. It's the autocrat style of leadership. It was common during the builder generation, the boomer generation. And you just can't hardly stomp it out. In Texas, we say it's like Johnson grass and red ants. You're just not going to get rid of them. And uh, they were trying to undo that and get more of a comprehensive team approach. It was sort of interesting when I got into full-time ministry that I saw the same leadership style. I, 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 the old 10-word curse 
the ten word monosyllabic curse. If it is to be, it is up to me. I saw that same thing in the church. We called it the lonely prophet. It's lonely at the top. I've got to go to the mountain. I've got to get the bread to feed the church. Now, here's, here's what I would say about most of our people. We are overfed and under-exercised. We know way too much and exercise what we know way too little. I, I, I think sometimes it would be good just to get up and say, I just want to remind you what you already know. This is the doctor. This is the plan of salvation. What have you got to do to get to heaven? Now, let's get out there and tell somebody about it, okay? Let's go. That's it. I think I, maybe our messages need to get bound. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Totally off the subject. But when I look at an organizational lens, leadership through a biblical lens, Jesus had 12. Paul, I can count about 90 co-workers of Paul in the book of Acts and the epistles. He built teams, teams. He was the one famous for saying one another, one another, one another, one another. 59 uses of the word one another in the New Testament. He, he did that. Uh, our, my old boss had tapped into an ancient root that we're just simply better together. We're healthier working together. Um, I would do this. I would say this. If, if I was to take what we're doing in the healthy church and translate it over into nonprofit realm, translate it over into limited partnership, translate it over into corporation realm, I would say I, would say I could make these observations. We have to prioritize organizational health. It's in Lencioni's recent work, the first book he's written that's not a parable. He said this in The Advantage, the single greatest advantage any company can achieve is organizational health. The McKinsey Consulting Group, 1,500 companies over 100, 100 company, countries over a 10-year period. What a longitudinal study this is. Almost all companies perform better if they improve their health those most lacking in health saw the biggest advances. Those good to great companies saw the greatest financial reward. Focus on health. It's not an either or, it's the genius of the and. You can grow and be healthy. Here's the reasons for organizational failures. I could, I could give you quite a few, like Zion being at ease. Organizations can get comfortable. Kodak, Blockbuster, Yahoo. Like Yahoo, I, I was meaning a company. I wasn't saying Yahoo like the chocolate drink that is just, it's wonderful. Yahoo's for everybody, that's what I say. Uh, like Gehazi chasing name and organizations take shortcuts that become blind canyons. Enron is living proof of that. Or WorldCom is another one. Like the early church before Acts 8.1. Organizations remain in their comfort zone, the cocoon of Jerusalem, and don't take the uttermost parts of the earth. Think of Henry Ford. He didn't want to build another car other than a Model T, and an initial success becomes a failure. I would say this. One of the greatest things we face today is what succeeded yesterday becomes our downfall today. We hold on to the successes of yesterday. Or like Diotrephes, who loved the preeminence Leaders do become autocrats. I think in Houston, I've stood at his grave, Howard Hughes, Hughes Corp. What a great example of that. Or like Noah, organizations can become drunk on success. Do you know that 25% of all organizations that filed bankruptcy this year had their greatest, most profitable year last year? That's, it, it's, it's Pan Am is a good example of that. Uh, and like Jehoshaphat's ships bound for the gold of Ophir that ran and broke up at Izion Geber. Organizations, we, we chase dreams. We just chase dreams. A source of failure. I could go on and on and on. 29% of companies fail not because they don't have a good product or service. They just run out of cash. They don't plan. They don't plan. This is definitely C stuff right here. This is not I stuff. This is C stuff. And like Elijah with a uh, solitary view of ministry organizations, we can become too personality driven and everything rises and falls on one person or one personality or one singer or one musician or one talented youth pastor. 
We can't have that. It's got to be a team. It has to be a team. Success has many failures, uh, many fathers, but failure only has none. I, I want to say this, uh, not in a negative sense, but a positive sense. If everything out there is responsible, then we can't chart a course. Leaders just say, okay, I don't care how we got here. I'm not looking to assign blame. I'm responsible to stop the slide and to redirect this behemoth and get it pointed back to where it needs to go. Let me give you a dashboard of organizational health. Don't have time to go through it. Uh, unifying vision and clarity. Vision is like culture. How are you going to define this word? I mean, everybody has definitions. I say vision is the blazing campfire around which we gather. I got to burn. It's got to burn so bright that it draws everyone around the campfire. You need a unifying vision. Core competencies. You need competent people, especially in a high growth environment. Uh, they, they've got to have the skills. They've got to have the skills, the services, the products, the knowledge, the capabilities, the strategies, just the core competencies. Three is sound character. I believe this with all of my heart, that we model culture. Leaders model culture. And culture is better caught than taught. And who you are, it's like Simon Peter's shadow that healed you have a healing influence around you, and you affect people wherever you go. Coordination and control, those are systems, operation, finances, and that bores people, certain people, to death. But you need them. Number five, engaging culture. Is it attractive? We don't pay people full-time wages at our church because we all want to be there. We all want to have fun. And uh, if our church is not having fun, we're, we're just, we're, we want to party. That's what we want to do. We want to have a good time fulfilling the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ and care about one another and just lock arms and make a difference and say someday in eternity, wow, wasn't it amazing? Didn't we have fun? Engaging culture. Creative leadership. I believe, I believe innovation, R&D. I believe staying ahead, looking into the future, knowing the trends, knowing what's happening, you've got to have creative leadership. And then what I call a bottomless chair. Uh, I could say a deep bench, but I like the bottomless chair. Do you know what, well, you know one of our key pastors in our church, um, he, he works for Salesforce, that's his day job. But his real job, he's the next step pastor. That's his job. He's the next step pastor. What he does, he comes around to our pastoral staff. He comes around to all the office workers. He goes out to all of our team leaders. We have 34 team leaders in our church. He goes to every one of the team leaders. He goes to their lieutenants, layers, and over a three-year time, every volunteer in the church, he will have met with them. And he asks them one question, what's your next step? And everybody is required to say this is our next step. We don't give trophies for someone who's taught the same Sunday school class for 40 years. We say that's ridiculous. You, you should have taught it a year or two, trained somebody to do it. We've got other places we need you to be. We need you to move into another sphere of leadership. Next step, pastors. And then we rejoice. We party when someone takes their next step, even if it's leaving our church even if it's going to start a new church, even if they're going to pastor somewhere, it is a celebration moment because they've finally been able to take their next step. But before they take their next step, we just tell them, you need to train two people to take your place. And that, that is the goal, is to keep people moving through cycles of leadership, a bottomless chair. Here's formal methods for assessing. Let me give you, you mentioned self-assessment. Um, I, I think if you're going to do some self-assessment, you need to take ownership. You need to say, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, that's got to do this, and I've got to do this. Second, form a health team. 
if life does move at the speed of relationships, what you are feeling and sensing, people in your church that are in key leadership roles will be feeling and sensing. Uh, my finance team came to me two months ago and said, Pastor, we're sensing something. You need to make this budget change. And so for the last four weeks, I've been making the budget change. You know why? I trust their vision. I trust their heart. I trust their burden. They're sensing something. And uh, we, we need to form these health teams. We need to ask the right questions. I love what Dr. Wilson said. That's the unifying goal. We don't have an org chart in our church. We just have our burning campfire. This is our campfire. Our campfire's others. It's burning bright. And then we have our core values and practices around that. Um, number four, welcome the diff difficult conversations. This is not in my nature to have difficult conversations, but I've gotten awfully good at them. I love talking difficult. I, I love talking about things that are difficult. Then document and then communicate the change. I, you've heard of the 12-step program used by some evangelicals called Celebrate Recovery. I think restoring health to an organization is not Celebrate Recovery, but it's Recovering Celebration. Most churches that are declining are sad. They're just sad. They're tired. They're hurting. They see people leave. Um, it reminds me of that beautiful hymn. I don't know. It's on page 172 of our hymn book. It's by the inimitable Rascal Flats. <sighs> that what you get when you play a country song backwards, you get your house back, you get your dog back. Get your best friend Jack back. This is, this is ministering to me. You get your truck back. Get your hair back. Get your mind back. Your nerves back. Get your first heart attack back. You get your pride back. You get your life back. I believe we need to recover celebration in the church. And this is one of the things that we see when a church starts getting healthy. The smiles start coming back. I mean, quantify that. I mean, that's an intangible but you can start sensing the joy coming back. And if the joy of the Lord is our strength, if you can get a church celebrating, and that's what we do in healthy churches, we never point out their weaknesses. The first few months, we are celebrating what they're good at because we got to get them back into a mindset that, hey, this is the place to be, and this is where you need to be and celebrate. I want to tell you a story in closing, then I'm, I'm done. Um, I, um, I don't know if you've ever read. I, I have offbeat reading choices. My, my, my reading is very different. I don't know if you've ever read Tony Campolo, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like a Party. Have you ever? This, this is, now Campolo's known for it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. This was not a bestseller for him. But he told the story of when he had to go to Honolulu to speak. I mean, somebody's got to do that, you know. Somebody has to go to Honolulu to speak. And, and uh, he had a long flight. He found an open diner. He had jet lag. It was wee hours of the morning. He was seated at the counter, and he overheard some women of dubious reputation. One of the women was named Agnes, and she mentioned to the other ladies it was going to be her birthday tomorrow. The other women laughed and said, what do you want? You want a birthday cake or something? After she left... Tony looked at the manager and said, hey, hey, why don't we throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow night? He said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah, every night about two or three in the morning. I said, okay. So the next night they had the decorations up. They had a cake bait. Word spread on the street. Everyone from the highways and the byways had come into the diner. And when Agnes came in, they shouted, surprise, surprise. Started singing happy birthday and laughter. Agnes stood there petrified tears coming down her face and finally she said I've never had a birthday cake before I know I'm supposed to share it but can I take it back to my apartment y'all stay here I'll, I'll come back but can I just hold on to it I've never had a birthday cake before and everybody got pretty quiet deep silence fell as she took the cake out Tony Campolo just stood up and started praying for the group. This is my kind of pastor. Just stood up in the midst of a diner with all of these night people and just started praying. Yeah. Thanking God for the great love that came down to earth. And after he finished, the cook was wiping tears out of his eyes. I said, are you a preacher or something? And Tony admitted he was. He said, well, I'm sort of a something. He said, what kind of church you have? And Campolo responded, I, I belong to the kind of church that throws 
parties over one sinner that repents at midnight. You want to talk about getting a church back to health? Start throwing parties for sinners that are repenting. Start throwing parties. I, I have shouted. You, you don't know pastoring. I have danced. I mean, literally danced across the front when a man would come up to me and say, I'm down to four packs of cigarettes a day. I dance. I shout. We rejoice. Uh, and it may take them years to get where they need to be. But you know what? Every incremental gain, I just believe all of heaven is going crazy. And as people start turning toward health, and as you, as a leader, in whatever sphere of leadership you have, as you turn them toward health, I promise you, all of heaven is rejoicing. God bless you. It's been a privilege. Thank you for the opportunity, Dr. Cotharp. God bless you.